The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let's open together now to God's Word and Genesis chapter 21 as we still make our way through the, the narratives of Abraham, the faith of our father we're learning about in Genesis now in chapter 21. And we're finishing chapter 21, so if you haven't already, let's turn there. Uh, Genesis 21, and we'll be looking at verse 22 through the end of the chapter. But as you're turning there, or if you've already gone there, I wonder, I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear the word pilgrim. When you hear the word pilgrim, what comes to mind? Now, I'd venture to guess that for almost all of us, uh, what comes to mind is something akin to uh, elementary school plays around Thanksgiving time uh, with the construction paper hats. And uh, we think of pilgrims. We think of those colonial religious dissenters who left England in order to come to the new world to have their religious freedom. And we think about the first Thanksgiving and the pilgrims, the Mayflower. We think of that, of course. And that makes good sense. Uh, but I wonder if we would also realize that when we think of the word pilgrim, it makes reference to one of the most regular metaphors for the Christian life. So the Bible would say something akin to the fact that you, as a Christian believer, are a pilgrim, not in the sense of a uh, square top black hat with a, a buckle on it and a large Thanksgiving table in the colonies, but rather a pilgrim as you make your pilgrimage through this life. So pilgrims connotate the idea of pilgrimage and a journey and a process, uh, which is why uh, the most popular Christian book outside of the Bible is called Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, making that metaphor to the Christian life and the, the journey through life that we experience and its fits and starts, its peaks and valleys, the experience of walking through this Christian life. And I think one of the reasons why uh, the idea of a pilgrim is so often used to describe the life of a Christian is because Abraham, our father, was a pilgrim. But the word pilgrim is not used to describe him, but rather Abraham is oftentimes spoken of as a, a sojourner, a traveler, one who didn't have a permanent home, but one who was on the way to his home. And so Abraham is spoken of as a sojourner and a traveler who was on the way to the home that God had promised him in the promised land. But one of the unique things about Abraham is that this whole idea of the promised land and this permanent residency is never completely and totally fulfilled in his life. And even all throughout the Old Testament and the history of Israel, it's never totally fulfilled. In fact, it's only in and through Jesus Christ who promises us a future new heavens and new earth will the idea of the promised land be ever totally fulfilled. And so what that means is that Abraham was and Isaac and Jacob and David, all those people throughout the Old Testament and all of the apostles and all the Christian believers who have come before us and even every single one of us are a pilgrim sojourner with our face set towards the promised land who are on the way but who are not there yet who we will only arrive fully and finally one day when God culminates this creation in a new creation and we dwell with him in the new heavens and new earth. That's the big picture of the Bible. 
that we as a people are on the way to that eternal dwelling place. And the reason why I'm saying all of that is because it provides somewhat of the context for the rest of chapter 21 because here we find Abraham on the way, on his pilgrimage and in his sojourning. And the rest of chapter 21 is going to explain to us that Abraham is able to journey through this life with relative peace and prosperity and safety because of what happens here in this chapter, that Abraham is going to enter uh, a covenant with Abimelech and enter into a settled peace that's going to carry him through the rest of his life in his earthly pilgrimage as he too awaits the final new heavens and new earth as we do. So just by way of context, at the end of this chapter, we're finding that Hagar and Ishmael have been sent away from Abraham's house. And Abraham is now journeying on. But Abraham has left Hagar and Ishmael. They've gone away from him. And Isaac, the son of promise, has been born. And as the covenant son is in the covenant household, we find a great future promise that's been fulfilled and will still yet be fulfilled. And now the rest of this chapter explains the peace that Abraham's going to enjoy as he makes the rest of his traveling. So that's what this chapter is all about. And here... We will see not just those details, but actually several very, very important points of very clear application for our Christian lives as you and I continue to make our pilgrimage sojourning through this life uh, as well. So we want to pick up on all of those things, hopefully with God's help. And of course, we need his help. So let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word, and then we will hear it together. Well, Lord God, we thank you now for the Bible. We thank you that you give it to us by way of divine inspiration, for these are not just the words of men. This is your word. And so, Lord, as we come to it with reverence, give us faith and the illumination of the Spirit in order to read and understand, in order to understand and apply, in order to apply and show forth the grace that you've given to us and the transformation that it brings into our life. So Lord, I pray that wherever we are today, that you would speak to us where we are and that you would help us to grow. So come now, Lord, rest powerfully upon your word and upon us, your people, we ask in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. And so hear God's word in Genesis chapter 21, beginning at verse 22 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I did not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. 
Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, and this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever and ever. So may he write its eternal truth upon our hearts today. Now, I want us to see just very simply uh, three things here in this passage, and with them a few very clear points of application, some really wonderful take-home points for us to consider out of this text. I want us to see, first of all, uh, what Abraham represents, uh, what Abraham promises, and who Abraham worships. What Abraham represents, who Abraham, what Abraham promises, and who Abraham worships. Those three things in this very interesting interaction that we find with Abraham and Abimelech. And let me just, uh, again, briefly give a bit of a context for how we get to this place. Uh, we don't know when or for how long, but Abraham, uh, who lives in a tent, and that's somewhat of a misnomer because when we think of a tent, we think of a, a single camping tent. But for Abraham, uh, as a sojourner, his tent represented all of his household that traveled in a grand caravan. And this passage indicates to us that Abraham's uh, household, his tent, uh, was not a modest one at all, but that Abraham was a man of great wealth who had in his possession very large herds that as he traveled, the livestock that he owned and the people who kept them took up a great deal of space. And so don't read Abraham and the sojourning of his tent as some kind of you know uh, modest uh, Coleman camping two-person tent, but rather the abundance of his household that represents his sojourning. But Abraham has moved from the land of Gera down to the land of what will be called Beersheba, which is to the southeast. And so uh, if you want to flip to a, a map and a study Bible, perhaps, uh, uh, where he is is in the southern portion of Israel, down to uh, the southwest of uh, the seas there, uh, and to the east of the Mediterranean, down in the bottom portion of Israel. And he is moving southeast now into the region closer to the land of the Philistines. And as he travels, he comes into the proximity of a king named Abimelech. And we've already learned about Abimelech back in chapter 20. Maybe if you want to look back there and remember that Abraham got himself caught in somewhat of a pickle where he told Abimelech that his wife Sarah was his sister, that episode again. Uh, but the point is, is that Abimelech has come back into the story as Abraham moves closer to the proximity of Abimelech's territory. And as Abraham's 
uh, household and as his livestock are grazing in the fields of the region of Beersheba where Abimelech is king, they come to find out that this land is not big enough for the both of us and there's only so much resources and what could promote a very hostile situation is actually settled in great peace. Uh, But it is in those details where we will find some very significant lessons for ourselves. So let us first just appreciate the fact that we can understand that this is a situation that would promote great conflict, the pasturing rights of the animals and water access to the wells. Uh, And this passage tells us how they avoided that conflict and instead found a way to live peaceably together. And so in the backdrop of that, of course, is the context of conflict and peace. So if you don't know the realities both of conflict and peace, uh, you might not be breathing because we all have conflict and peace going on in our lives and the tension between these two. So let us see, first of all, what Abraham represents. And uh, for that, we look back to verse 22, uh, but Abimelech encounters Abraham and remembers the, uh, the, the last encounter they had. And it says uh, that they approached him saying, God is with you in all that you do. Abraham, we remember you. We remember the encounter that we had. But our summary and impression of you is that God is with you in all that you do. And the thing to make note of here is that Abimelech is a Philistine king. And so by association, he is considered a, a pagan king. He is not of Abraham's household. He is not of the people of covenant faith. He is a pagan king, but this pagan, unbelieving king is able to recognize in God's servant Abraham, verse 22, that God is with you in all that you do. That there was something about Abraham and about his life that carried the reality of God's presence in such a way and so strongly that this pagan king was able to recognize, verse 22, God is with you. And that highlights the fact that one of the great purposes of God in Abraham's life is to bless the nations, to bless even the pagan nations of the people that don't know God, that in Abraham, that people would be blessed because of who Abraham is. And we see here an example of this, that Abimelech, the pagan king, experiences the blessing of, if you like, rubbing shoulders with Abraham to such a degree that he would know, wow, God is, God is with you. There's something different about you. Now, there is an immediate application in that, isn't there? That Abraham, being in covenant relationship with God, has as a characteristic of his life the reflection of God in such a way that someone is able to look upon his life and conclude that God is with you. And the the obvious question to ask is, are, are we the people of God who are in covenant with God through his son, Jesus Christ? Is the grace of God apparent in my life? in such a way that unbelieving people who know neither God nor His grace can look at you, can look at me and say, you know, there's something about you. It's true that they may say something negative. There's something about you that I don't like, but in this sense, it's speaking about the reality that there is something compelling about Abraham to Abimelech. That there is something compelling 
about Abraham that draws Abimelech in that God is with you and that it is an attractive thing. The question to ask is, am I, as a Christian believer, a, a living witness of the reality of the grace of God in my life in such a way that it compels people to say in a positive way something is different about you? Now, you could conjecture about what was it that compelled Abimelech to Abraham? Was it, was it his wealth? Was it you know, his great uh, prosperity, both in terms of material things and his flocks? Did Abimelech hear that Abraham had waited faithfully for the son to come, Isaac, and now he was born, and so he's marveling about Abraham's ability to be patient. Is that the thing? Maybe, maybe it was just the fact that Abraham carried himself with a, a certain measure of grace and dignity. We don't know these things. But what we can say for sure was that Abimelech was compelled to Abraham, and the question is, is are people compelled to you? Uh, is your faith of such living witness that it provides a tangible, compelling reality that draws someone in? Can that be said of us? Now, in varying degrees, maybe so. But you know what one of the simplest things about being a Christian believer actually is? One of the simplest things to be compelling, and uh, it's, it's quite base and simple, is just this. Ready? Don't be a jerk. <laughs> right? A decent human being. We are decent in Jesus' name because of the grace that God has showed to us. And so in one sense, kindness and, and friendship and, and decency, right, are things that we are compelled to, not just because we want all people to be kind people, but because in Jesus' name we want to be shown as unique and shown as different. The New Testament uses a metaphor uh, that that by the Spirit of God it causes us to have a different aroma than other kinds of people. A pleasing aroma that people are drawn to and they say, what is that? Something different about you. And actually, towards the very end of the Old Testament in the prophet Zechariah, it says this, that, that in the last day that people will say, we have heard that God is with you, which is exactly what Abimelech is saying of Abraham in Genesis 21. And so the question just simply to ask is, is the grace of God apparent in your life in such a way that it compels people in a kind way, in a gracious way? doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how old you are, whether it's at work, uh, on your sports team, in your club, in your civic activities, wherever you are, is the grace of God apparent in your life in such a way that people are drawn? And by being drawn, you have opportunity to speak of the mercy of Christ to you and why you would be kind. Maybe you as a student, why you would be kind to this other student that other people are picking on, perhaps. Whatever the situation is, there is an application. Is the grace of God apparent in our lives? It was apparent in Abraham's life. Let it be true in ours as well. So Abraham represents the grace of God to Abimelech. And, and what happens here is that as Abimelech is drawn to Abraham, who is sojourning with dignity that draws Abimelech, we find this encounter uh, in which Abimelech and Abraham have great opportunity to perhaps be at war with each other, but instead find the opportunity for conflict. They enter into, in this passage, something of this very formal relationship, and it's going to have terms. Uh, you'll notice in verse 23 to verse 24 that Abimelech comes to Abraham and says, 
let us dwell at peace with each other uh, because in chapter 20 there was a bit of a deception and uh, Abimelech is saying, let us not experience that anymore. Let us deal kindly together. So you will deal with me and I with you in the land which you have sojourned. Verse 24, Abraham says, yes, we'll be at peace together. But in order for a peace to be established, there's something between these men that needs to be settled. And we go on to find in verse 25 that some of Abimelech's men, his servants, had commandeered one of Abraham's wells that he had dug that was to be used for his livestock. And in an arid climate, uh, like this, we can understand how precious of a, a resource a well was. And if a well was uniquely reserved for my property and someone else was coming to take from it and draining my well, it could potentially incite great controversy. And so Abraham tells Abimelech that this has happened. Now, Abimelech says he doesn't know about it and we could perhaps take him on his word. But the reality here is that these two men, in order to have peace, must first get past a conflict that exists between them. Peace is always achieved oftentimes through the walking of uh, conflict and the settling of conflict. So we have this principle here as well that in order for peace to be established between two parties, uh, a settlement must first be reached, a peace must be obtained. And from that also very clearly we can make this application that how do you handle conflict in your life when you have it? You've got it, of course. How do you handle conflict in your life between two parties? Think about the millions of ways that this had, could have gone wrong. It's Abraham's well. It's his rights. Abimelech and his servants had commandeered it. And Abraham went to Abimelech and recounted the wrong that had been done. Now, you could say perhaps that uh, Abraham would have been in his right to, to, to raise up men from his household and attack Abimelech. Take it back by force. It would have been his right. It's his property. You could say that. Or uh, maybe Abraham could have gone all through his household and spoken of Abimelech and his uh, kingdom saying how rotten of a people these people were. But here you have an example of biblically how conflict is to be settled between two parties. How do we handle personal offenses between two Parties. Now, I don't want to go into tons of detail here, but just to make the application, and this is very, very important, that if you want the, the context for this, you need to go later on and look at Matthew chapter 18. You Write that down, look at it later. Matthew chapter 18 recounts straightforward a three-step process for how to handle conflict in your life. Do you have conflict in your life? Of course you do. How will you handle it? You have a choice. Conflict can be settled in your life one of two ways. It can be handled sinfully and insistently in your own way, or it can be handled God's way. And what is God's way of handling conflict between two parties? The first step and the unavoidable reality is that when two people have a problem those two people should speak to each other. Revolutionary? No. Disobeyed? Often. What happens instead? You start talking to everybody else about the problem you have with that person. 
You start justifying all sorts of behaviors and ways of thinking in your own heart about that person instead of just going to them because it may be as this was a misunderstanding. Abimelech seems to not even be aware that this had happened. And Abraham went to him, settled his peace, and they had it. Go to that person. Isn't it amazing that most of our conflicts in our life can be avoided through the obedience to God's word when we realize that most things are just based off of misunderstandings, but instead of pursuing obedience in our conflicts, we pursue disobedience, and a misunderstanding leads to a rift, and a rift leads to perhaps a great divide. And what a scandal that is. Abraham settles his peace with Abimelech, but they also do so formally by way of a covenant. We see that actually at the end of verse 27. Abimelech didn't know, and so Abraham took sheep, verse 27 says, took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Uh, Abraham presents to Abimelech as an earnest, no, that's really mine. And I'll show you by way of this reality, here are these uh, animals, and also particularly seven ewe lambs. No, this is really mine. As an oath of ownership, Abraham sets forward this, and it says that Abraham and Abimelech made a covenant together made a peace, made an arrangement, made a treaty, came to an understanding. And the amazing thing about this is that this is not just some kind of compact between two parties who are in a property dispute. It represents the fact that Abraham is learning about the relationship that he has with God and how that should influence the relationship he has with other people. Do you remember back in chapter 15, that Abraham and God made a covenant together. And God entered into this covenant with Abraham and used the animals to designate that, Abraham, I swear my allegiance to you and my faithfulness to you, and I'm putting forth these animals as a testimony that this will be true. And I swear this oath of this covenant that Abraham has so learned about his relationship with God that it is influencing the way he treats other people by entering into this peaceful covenant with Abimelech. His knowledge of God is making an impact upon him to such a degree that this place is called Beersheba. Verse 32 says, So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and that word literally means the well of seven or could also be translated as the well of the oath the well of the covenant, so that the name Beersheba would always represent this covenant relationship that Abraham and Abimelech had entered into. And the question to ask there, of course, is not just how do we understand how we relate conflict in our life, even though we learn that from this text, but it also means does the growing relationship that we have with God influence the relationship that we have with other people? Does our vertical relationship with our God in heaven influence the relationships we have horizontally here on earth? And we see that Abraham is growing in his understanding in this. And hopefully by grace, you and I are growing in that understanding as well. So uh, we've seen uh, what Abraham represents, who he represents, uh, what Abraham promises. And now the final detail in this text is who Abraham worshipped. So it says in Verse 32, so they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. 
Verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Uh, Abraham is traveling here through the southern region, the land of the Philistines. It's called the land of sojourning here in this land that is known throughout the history of Israel as a pagan land, a land that is not faithful to the God of the covenant. But here is Abraham traveling through this land and there, verse 33, worshiping God. When it says in the middle of verse 33 that Abraham called there on the name of the Lord, that's the Old Testament's way of explaining that Abraham is worshiping. Uh, at this point, there's no temple, uh, there's no tabernacle, that you worship God where you are as you call upon his name. And we find the detail that the man of faith, Abraham, is worshiping the one true God who is called, pay special attention to it at the end of verse 33, he is worshiping the Lord who is the everlasting God. The everlasting God. In Hebrew, it's El Olam. The everlasting God. I want us to just reflect on this in, in closing as we consider Abraham's life and his sojourning and your life and your sojourning and our life together as the people of God and our sojourning through this life in the midst of the fact that God is the everlasting one. Do you remember in Psalm 90, Moses says in Psalm 90 verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From as far as eternity is backward to as far as eternity is forward, God is the everlasting God. And we should think of this for just a moment because here is Abraham in his sojournings as a pilgrim Abraham is just a man, and his life is what Psalm 90 teaches us. It's temporal, it's passing, it's fragile, it's fleeting, it goes away. The metaphor that the Bible uses for our human life is, is that it has sometimes like dust. It's here and then it goes. It gets tossed up into the wind and blows away. It's fleeting and fragile. And Abraham's life is to be regarded as fleeting and passing and temporal. And he worships the everlasting God. Now, what should that mean for you? Think of that. Think of that as it relates to what we do here on the Lord's Day every single Sunday. I don't know if you reflect on this and I encourage you to do that. But after our assurance of pardon, we sing that song, don't we? The Gloria Patri. Now, I didn't grow up in a tradition that sung the Gloria Patri, and maybe you've been singing the Gloria Patri your whole life. I didn't, and so I have to learn what it's all about. And you should be trying to figure out what it is you're doing, not just rote going through the repetitions. But you stand and sing of the God who was and the God who is and the God who is to come. The Gloria Patri as a Trinitarian formula goes back to the first century and it was put in musical form in the uh, 16th century. These are words that the church has been using and singing for thousands and thousands of years of the one who was and who is and who is to come as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be, a world without end. What's that talking about? 
What are you singing about? You grab the back of your pew and you pull yourself up. The pew creaks a little bit, doesn't it? Maybe you creak a little bit as you stand too. And you in your temporal life that is fleeting, raise your voice and declare the praise of the one who was and who is and who is to come, the everlasting God. That we who are temporal praise the one who is eternal. Here you are and here God is and you are in covenant together with God. Abraham praises the name of the Lord who is the everlasting God, the one who changes not, who has no season or is not subject to change in any sense. You and I are mutable. We change. Times change. Seasons change. Fashions change. I was reading that uh, the, the earliest memory you ever have is usually like age three, but by the time you get to age seven, you lose those memories in what's called childhood amnesia. You don't even remember your own life. And yet here is God, the author of all being, of all people, who forgets nothing, who never changes, who is not mutable in any sense. He is immutable. He is the everlasting God. This is the reality that we who are himself, we who are ourselves, full of change, worship the one who never changes. You know, the prophet Isaiah picks up on this when he says this in chapter 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases his strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And the question in the end of this chapter is, do you worship El Olam, the everlasting God? Here is Abraham in all of his sojournings, worshiping what never changes. Now listen, you in your life, you may not be where you want to be. And where you are might be somewhere you never planned. And you may be dissatisfied with your lot in life in such a way that you anticipate that there's something else that you're headed to. But no matter who you are, no matter where you are, the everlasting God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he guides you in all of your sojournings, in all of your pilgrimage, as you are on the way to be with him forever. And so there is grace for the pilgrim, and there is grace for Abraham, the sojourner here, and there is grace for us. And what an important application on a Father's Day, isn't it, to remember that you have a Father in heaven who loves you, who provides for your needs, who cares for you, who gives to you his own Son, so that you might be sealed in your sojournings and in your pilgrimage to know that you are on the way to where he has promised to take you, his promised land. So let us call these things to mind and worship the God who never changes. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in your word you reveal to us things that are both historical in the past and wonderfully relevant for us now today in the present. We pray, Lord, 
that we might, by work of your Spirit, show forth the reality of your grace and travel with the confidence that you go with us and you go before us and you go behind us. So, Lord, on this Father's Day, how we thank you that you are our Father and that you lead us in all of our travels. We thank you for that mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.